Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Fool's Game. That's the intro and the first track of the 2020 demo, Roll the Dice. Fool's Game. This is a best of band. Clemo from the Northeast, J- Big Jake Hesitate, the man Soupy himself, Mr. Ubiquitous. Dude's got 17 bands, book shows in Pennsylvania, up in the far area of the Bethlehem, and then also down in Media. The kid's all over the place, and that's what we need. I, I, you know, if every hardcore scene had one Clemo, one Big Jake, one Soupy, you guys would all be fucking set for the next 10, 15 years. So, considering the fact that this hardcore is five weeks away, what better than the band who's going to be starting on Friday night? To open up the set. So, thank you once again for tuning in. Try to keep this short because obviously we want to get to part two of Danny Schuler. But, like I said, five weeks that this is hardcore. Are you ready? Did you get your ticket? Did you get your pass? There is semantics in play here, but they're not. Like, a pass means more than one day. So, to reiterate what I've said before. The... Three-day pass is sold out. The Friday show is sold out. You can get a ticket for Thursday, which is the pre-show. And it is a fucking killer pre-show, by the way. Featuring our good friend and guest, Danny Schuler, and his band, Kings Never Die, which we talk about on this podcast. Um, the show really is a bang. So many people from the Philly area... Still put so much love on the H2O name. So the show is H2O Tsunami. This is Tsunami's going to be playing another show in the Midwest this summer. But this is the only East Coast show for Tsunami. My bro E and Scarhead. Carried by Six and Hold, Mid- Hold My Own. Carried by Six is Big Zach. Chris Mahmood. And um, Kyle Lifeless. Hold My Own is members of... MH Chaos, Greg Falchetto from Mongoloids and every other band, and of course, Big Shane. So, two out of three um, people have been on the podcast just on Hold My Own. Carried by Six and Hold My Own, I'm doing a split seven inch. Cool to have them. Karma's representing Chicago. Our broke gloves off. Cody, Zero Trust. We had Big Zach from Bulldoze, Homicidal, Agents, Scarhead. This is a band, Zero Trust. We played them on his podcast. Kings Never Die, the band we're going to be talking about tonight, featuring members of Mucky Pup, ex-members of uh, Doggy Dog, Dan Nastasi. He's been in a million bands. He's a future guest. And, of course, Danny Schuler, who's in Kings Never Die. Now, Honey is a sick metallic thrash band by Big J from Turning Point. And his band's been trying to get off the ground since COVID, so why not throw some love to Honey you know, having Turning Point play this hardcore was a real cool thing. Want to send some love to Jay. Cycle of Abuse. Big Mike with the deep voice. Cycle of Abuse is mad ignorant. Um, very aggressive. Heavy. I don't like the word beat down. It's corny as fuck. You lose IQ points just saying it. But heavy ass hardcore. And they're setting this one off. That's the pre-show. Friday night we got the Marauder Section 8 Queensway Punishment Hoods thing. That show's totally sold out. I don't even need to say this, but Saturday and Sunday are absolutely fucking stacked. Both are at the main Franklin Music Hall venue. Hate Breed, Madball, Fury of Five, Killing Time, Alt War, Wisdom, Ringworm, and so many more. Sunday, Thursday, Terror, Comeback Kid, Misery Angels. 
Kublai Khan, Leeway, Gridiron, Sea of Space Cowboy. I mean, the list goes on and on. This hardcore, you can get your ticket pretty simple. You go to thishardcorefest.com. If you want to see the pre-show, you get a ticket for the Thursday. Buy a two-day if you want to go to Saturday, Sunday. Or get a singular ticket if you only go one day. But it's coming up soon, five weeks. Don't fucking sleep on This Is Hardcore. It's going to be fucking something special, especially without doing it the last couple years. Um, since this is coming out on Friday, the 3rd, it's important to tell you that the tomorrow will be the Philly Hardcore Barbecue Show. And uh, Philly Hardcore, Philly, I just stuttered that so bad. The Philly Barbecue started with Bob Wilson. It's never actually happened in the city, but that's the coolest part. Many years ago, Philly had a attitude about city lines and that being the only people really from the scene. But this scene has always been supported by so many people in Delaware, South Jersey, and then Pennsylvania that Bob's rated some wrongs. This is the third one. It's pretty simple. The doors are at one. Starts at two. You pay $2 if you're there before the first man, 10 after. Once again, it's at the Polish Club. Kind of been the next spot we've been doing a lot of shows at. Big shout out to Soda and Adam Engel for letting us have the spots there. Bankrupt, Cardinate, CDC, Chemical Fix, Choice to Make, Kind of with Cycle Abuse, Damnation Domain, Fire in the Blood, Fool's Game, Fire in Hands, Garrote, Hair to Stay, Killing Me, Life's Questions, Never Again, Scrutinize, Snub Nose, and Year of the Knife. A lot of these bands have never played. He hasn't doubled up sometimes. That's pretty fucking sick. Make sure you support that shit. Uh, coming up pretty soon, also in just general Philadelphia hardcore, is No Pressure, uh, which is Harry Regulate and um, Homeboy from the Story So Far thing. They played the Underground Arts a couple years ago, uh, not a couple years ago, like earlier last year. It was pretty fantastic. Now they got the record out on Triple B. And. I'm telling you, that's going to be a wild one at the church. And one of the only shows right now we have at the church, we're getting so damn hot. So, no pressure. Illusion. Check out Illusion if you had. Uh, Raw Brigade um, from Delaware. They killed it Friday night. Media killing me. Get your tickets. After this hardcore, we got a slew of shows. We're not stopping, but make sure you check out the 18 Visions 20th anniversary of the Vanity Tour, which is a great record. We'll see you, Space Wildboy. Chamber. Reese Meets Razor and Snake Charmer at the Underground Arts. More shows getting announced. Always check out phillyhcshows.com or on Instagram and Twitter. A um, couple quick things. Uh, I'm really getting tired of uh, merch, merch cut Twitter. You know, um, for, for those who don't get it or don't really care, you go on tour, you play certain venues, they're going to ask for a cut of merchandise. There's ways around it. it. It comes par for the course of playing more professional tours and non-hardcore shows mainly. But what happens is it's like these bands that just started in a game of these touring things and they gotta like, you know, extol the fucking, what, are the, what is the term here? Uh, basically just gotta like break down the walls and shit talk. Fuck these fucking clubs and their merch cuts. Like, hey man, you guys play DIY spots. No one's stopping you. Um, DIY hardcore is alive and well in almost every part of the goddamn country. God bless to all the local and regional, national, international people who just do hardcore shows. And they don't take money from the bands for the merch. But I, it's like, especially some of the death metal bands, the more metalcore shit, 
every day on Twitter is merch cut this, merch cut that. This shouldn't be. It's like, hey, man, your band wants to be a pro core band. You want to like blow up and make it big. Think Iron Maiden cares about the fucking merch cut? No, they got 17 fucking stands. And you could be like Alt War. You could be like Righteous Chance. You could be like so many bands that I remember specifically selling merch outside of the venue so they don't want to give the bands a merch cut. So there's ways around it. Stop crying about it on Twitter. Uh, big ups to our bros, Law of Power, getting signed to Flat Spot Records. A lot of cool shit came out. Um, I should have put a song up by End It, but Akil, he didn't fucking send me one, so kiss my ass as Akil. Love you. New record from them guys is going to be fucking spectacular. People seem to love the Simulaka record. A lot of cool shit coming out. Make sure to check it all out. Rolling into our guest, for those of you who did not listen, we have done a first episode. This is a second episode for This Is Hardcore with Danny Schuler. And so it was only 14 episodes ago. So go back to episode 68 and check out. It's only an hour and a half. That's the first episode. If you're going to go into this, make sure to check that shit out. So there's still some stuff to talk about. You know, we didn't finish the biohazard story. You like to try to put a bow on that. I mean, it's, it's impossible. We can spend 10 hours talking to him about all the intricate things. And this podcast has never really been about slinging dirt, talking shit. It's about getting one perspective from the member who I'm speaking with, uh, opinion or their experience of the band. And you might listen to this and go, well, he didn't bring up this. Yeah, because maybe that's not what he wishes to speak on. If you're listening to this is Hardcore Podcast and you're looking for some... 90s zine nonsense crybaby drama where he says fuck this guy and fuck that guy that's the wrong podcast you're not listening to the right one because I don't do that shit here I I love what Danny had to say about uh, Biohazard I love his opinions on a lot of stuff Um, he's a great fucking fantastic guy and knowing that it's so hard for people who are super experienced in touring multiple bands a great pedigree lineup of members in Kings Never Die. I wanted to support Kings Never Die. I wanted to talk to my friend Danny. So here you go. Here's part two of Danny Schuler from Biohazard, who's now in Kings Never Die, but played in a ton of shit. And again, thank you once again to Danny for coming on the show a second time. Make sure you go back to episode 68 if you didn't listen to it. And let's fucking go. Once again, we are going to have our friend Danny Schuler, Deluxe, Kings Never Die, formerly a biohazard, back on the show to continue the talk and um, work us from some very high highs to some very new opportunities coming up. Danny, thank you for coming back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Love it. It's awesome. So we left off with a funny anecdote about rabies and his intentions to join biohazard. Yeah. <laughs> And, and needless to say is if you haven't listened to the episode, please go back. It, it's definitely worth it. Um, now, I could get really tedious and go record by record and tour by tour, but really the things that are most interesting about Biohazard is how a bunch of guys who were just playing shows in Brooklyn and the Moors end up signing a deal to Warner Brother Records and, and writing a record that, would sell over a million copies in such a short time out of a scene where so many people never really, I, to me, I always felt like hardcore at that time, never really saw that kind of level of success as even being possible. And mm. yet you guys were the ones to claim it. So 
uh, walk us through, because, you know, we talked about early touring and, you know, the earlier records, but can you walk me through building up the state of the world and the whole process of not so much the whole process of Warner brothers, but like how it felt and lead us into like the moment they were like, Oh yeah, by the way, yeah, I sold a million records. Well, uh, <laughs> we, we definitely didn't sell a million records overnight. You know, we sold, um, uh, you know, internationally, we sold at least that much. It took some time, but um, you know, the work that went into doing that was a tremendous amount of work, you know, like, um, you know, if, if we start at the beginning of biohazards professional career and I say professional, I guess is when you have a, you know, a record company or, or something that you're selling. Um, the first record came out on maze records that came out in 1990. Uh, we didn't record for Warner brothers until 1994. So there were four years there of us, constantly touring and um actually five years of us just constantly touring constantly on the road in the united states and in europe and other places uh just working like crazy to um build the following of the band you know to get get our our uh, to get biohazard out there around the world you know it was a ton of work joe thousands of shows and uh, very few days off and um I mean, the entire decade of the 1990s was really like that for us. But, you know, that beginning half, the first four or five years of the 90s was just unbelievably busy and incredible. Like, uh, you know, new things, big things happening all the time and getting bigger every month. You know, it was just amazing. And, um, you know, that first record came out and the first record was very, a very underground record. You know, it was like uh, it sold and it sold a bunch, but we really we didn't see it. You know, there was no MTV. There was no nothing like that. It was a very underground, um, a very underground kind of vibe, but we toured a lot for it. And then the, the second album was urban discipline and that came out on roadrunner. And, you know, that was the album that really established us as, you know, wow, these guys, these guys are, are a serious band, you know, um, we had a couple of videos like the punishment videos on there and stuff. And, um, that, you know, that and the timing of headbangers ball on MTV and all that stuff, uh, definitely, definitely helped us, you know? Um, and again, on state of the world address, it started the cycle. I, I mean, on uh, urban discipline, excuse me, started again, that cycle of touring, you know, where we just went out, we went out in the States with, uh, um, sheer terror and um, uh, sick of it all, and uh, we did a bunch of touring internationally in 1992, 93. Um, crisscrossed the state several times, all across Europe, South America, Japan. Um, you know, again, it was just another busy cycle setting up that that Warner Brothers record, State of the World Address, and we were terrified going into the whole Warner Brothers thing because even though we met the people at Warner brothers and they were cool and they were awesome. It was still such a big machine to be stepping into, you know, that whole corporate kind of record label thing. But when we met them and, and um, went out to LA and, and went to the offices and met everybody, we found that it was really a cool thing. Like there was a lot of cool people there who just had jobs at a big record company. And, you know, it, uh, it definitely um, was different than roadrunner 
you know, we loved Roadrunner. Roadrunner was a New York label. Everybody who worked there were people we knew from going to shows in New York, and it was a very comfortable experience. You know, the State of World Address Warner Brothers experience was very different with new people based in California and all this stuff. But it was still cool. It was still cool for us. Um, they gave us a very fair shot. They didn't interfere with our creativity. They let us make the record we wanted to make. And that was State of the World Address. And it was amazing to have the power of a big label behind us. But they didn't really do much. They waited for us to kind of like come around. And they just kind of got it everywhere. You know, they used their huge machine to, to raise awareness of the band. But we did the rest. You know, State of the World Address came out and we worked harder than ever. I mean, I think I told you this in the last interview, but I mean, we literally toured for 17 or 18 months straight. Like we left home, I think it was January 3rd, 1994. And we didn't come home until September of 1990, excuse me, October of 1995. You know what yeah, I mean? But, Joe, you there? Yeah, <laughs> okay. absolutely. No, no, I, I, I loved the way that you broke it down, especially for those who haven't listened to the last episode. Yeah. And, and it, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's, well, well that's in a nutshell. That's how it <laughs> it's yeah. incredible to hear the work and just, that's the thing I think people miss out on yeah. in today's streaming world is not realizing the value of road, the road work and like just being out there. You guys have played with such a different variety of bands. I yeah. mean, you guys, you guys had toured with, um, I believe I saw you guys one time with Cypress Hill and Corn, and I remember uh, seeing when, when, that was House of Pain. House that of Pain was House Corn. of Pain and Corn. That's what it was. Yeah. Me, yeah, me and Chris were just going over it. I'm like, do you remember the time we saw Corn and Biohazard with somebody? And it was at, the, and that time it was yeah. at the Tower Theater, out in, yeah. um, in Upper Darby. But the, yeah. the thing that always amazed me about the state of the world, the dress record was a lot of bands get this major release, especially at that time with grunge being such a powerful force in, in, uh-huh. in pop music, but that still has like a heavier vibe. I think you guys wrote the heaviest record you guys have written to date. <laughs> that was like, and that's like, yeah. obviously get you on the tours of the biohazards. And it's, I mean, not the Panteras and the Supple Tours, but like, yeah, that was a, that was a comparable, heavy record that really stood out not just in in some ways because of the amazing orange jewel case packaging and shit but just the sound <laughs> and then and then no it was incredible because i remember going to get it in tower on south street and being like holy fuck it's an orange like um yeah and, and i think the year that that came out you guys got an award for rolling stone best logo of the year and i mean yeah i, I have a biohazard tattoo on my elbow yeah, you guys have literally thousands of fans across the world with the logo. I yeah. mean, there's there's just a there's a clever un unintentional marketing gem in there. But more importantly, some bands at that time would be like, all right, here's where we do the sellout record. And you guys went balls to the wall on that thing. And yeah. it, it fucking still stands out as one of the best records that I hear to me. Thanks, bro. I appreciate that. Well, you know, credit to uh props to Warner Brothers for allowing, you know, a little band from New York to do whatever they wanted to do. They, they literally just were like, go ahead and make your record. They let us hire whoever we wanted to work with and let us go record where we wanted to go. And they did not interfere at all creatively, which was the main thing that we were terrified of. Like 
signing to a big label. Now there's big money and, and business involved. And we were worried like, yo, you know, they know they're signing biohazard, right? Like this is not going to turn into. to do and it was important to us to maintain that credibility and that that realness that authenticity you know and uh they just stayed out of our way and it was amazing that they did that you know what i mean so props to warner brothers it wasn't it wasn't what most people would expect it to be that relationship it was great now i remember seeing old videos from you guys even in um like the mid nineties, like the dynamo shows and all that stuff. Yeah. I know yeah. that the European markets and just overseas was a big part of it. But I mean, I remember seeing biohazard at the beginning, but then when that record came out, my friends in the neighborhood who were straight metal dudes who only went to long hair shows were like, dude, it's fucking biohazard, man. Like, fucking, like, you know, like they're all about it. And there was a whole yeah. new generation of people from the helmet world and all that weird stuff. It yeah. was a good time for heavy music in America in general. God, I mean, we talked about it in the last episode about the Onyx thing. And then, you know, the, the judgment night stuff. There was just something special about Biohazard and to think that you guys weren't resting on laurels like, yeah, we got signed no major fuck you. It was like, no, now it's time to really go to work is actually fantastic and uh, emblematic of just kind of like the working class values guys put into the band. Yeah, that was really how we felt like we felt that way doing this one. Like it was after the first record, we were so disappointed with the first record, you know, at least I was. I was like, you know what? It was great, but there were so many things about it I would have done differently. And then um, I remember having this conversation with Bobby Hamble before we recorded Urban Discipline. And Bobby said to me, he was like, you know, first record is what it was, but this next record, Urban Discipline, we have to make the record that we want to hear. For You know, like if we if we took and combined everything from every band that we loved, loved at that time and then added our own flavor to it, that's, that's the record we have to make. And that was really the attitude we took when we went in to do Urban Discipline. And Urban Discipline, you know, has now taken on this kind of legendary aura. But at the time when it came out, it wasn't all that big of a deal. You know, we, we were on tour and didn't really notice much. You know, we were just busy. Um, but State of the World Address was like, we looked at that as our opportunity to like, 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 like go even deeper and make the most sonically punishing hard record that we possibly could. And um, that's what we tried to do. And for the time, I mean, listening to it now, it doesn't hold a candle to like modern metal hardcore records, you know. Um, but for the time, for 1994, it was a damn good record, man. And we were very proud of it. Extensive and crazy. 
but yeah, that was Biohazard in a nutshell. Those first three records were what the band was all about. And then, you know, things kind of changed after that, but you know, that that's really what it was. We, you know, for those first bunch of years, we really, we really had it going on. Now, what do you think? I mean, obviously you guys would go on to release more records and change record labels a few times, but yeah. it was a hard time for metal as an American audience specifically because yeah. hair metal had already kind of uh, transitioned into the more Seattle sound that, that some of the traditional metal bands like the Skid Rose played had a, had like a heavier record. Some yeah. bands kind of pulled away. And then in the midst of the, the surge of stuff that was happening in the mid nineties, yeah. the corns and three elevens and the, the, the beginning of like what would be like what they call like the new metal would roll in. Yeah. And if I felt like if you were an American metal band or playing in the, in metal spaces, but not really saying like, not just being hardline to metal, just being a heavy band. It felt like the goalpost kept moving for you first. It's like, all right, you're not hair metal enough. Then it's like, all right, you're not grunge enough. And then it's like, you're not weird enough. And you guys had to kind of balance that. Yeah. There, there was definitely that, you know, things were changing, but we weren't really trying to fit in anywhere so much. Like we were still kind of like, uh, kind of paving our own way um, after a state of the world address. But, you know, we lost our way um, a lot because like we had a lot of distractions that came in and like messed up the energy within the band. You know, we had like things happen. Like we really got just way too burnt out from doing way too much. You know, by the end of 1995, we had been on the road for like six years and uh, done a lot of it living in vans and, and like, you know, a really hard kind of way of touring. And um, we were burnt out. And, you know, State of the World Address came, came out. It did really well. And during the course of that tour, the band just fell apart. You know, there were guys you know, drinking, there were guys arguing, there were, you know, girlfriend issues, there were numerous personal issues that, that kind of started to weigh on all of us. And if, if somebody would have just put the brakes on the whole thing for a minute and been like, Hey guys, you know, you guys have been on the road a long time. Let's take a six month break before something stupid happens. That would have been great. But we, you know, we didn't have that kind of like advice. We didn't have those kind of advisors around and nobody was thinking that way it was more like just go 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 and uh you know i regret that we didn't take a break before things fell apart you know because i i think it would have changed the uh trajectory of how the whole thing went but unfortunately we didn't take a break and we were we were thrown right back in the studio after 19 months on the road and you know, the band just blew up and uh, Bobby Hamble ended up leaving the band or getting kicked out of the band or however you want to say it. And it, it just ruined the chemistry of what was once a very um, uh, cohesive band, you know, a band that never really got along as well as we should have. But there was a chemistry there creatively that was really strong. And we lost that when when, you know, when one original guy leaves the other three guys just kind of were compensating. And, and the record that we did after that was Mata Leal. And that record was like, we had nobody 
to like check us and be like, what are you guys doing? You know, you guys are fucking making a silly record that nobody's going to like. Like we, we just kind of like just, just did whatever we wanted to do without checking ourselves. You know what I mean? And that was Mataleo. And that's, that's a record. Like I don't love that record. You know, that's like kind of a dark time for me personally in the band, that whole era. Um, because I didn't love the music we were making. You know, I loved being in the band and I wanted to continue being in the band, but without Bobby there, it was really difficult. And I thought we could pull it off. Um, and we couldn't pull it off the same way. And at that time, you know, the record that we made, I mean, there were some good songs on that record, but, uh, you know, recently I put that record on and tried to listen to it and I still don't like it. So, so there you go. I mean, that happens, you know, that happens in bands careers sometimes. Well, I mean, it's, it's always hard to follow up <clears throat> such a tremendous record immediately. And then to take away a core element in the process, yeah. just it's, it's very hard to do. And then it'd be, and then obviously you had help from uh, the guy from helmet. And then, you guys are playing some massive stuff. You guys are doing Monster Rock. You're on doing the Ozfest. You're doing all these big yeah. things that are like yeah. dream-like opportunities. So I could totally see you being like, fuck, we should stop. But then all these, hey, here's your chance to do this. Come along. Yeah. Yeah, and it was just like there's a million things happening. We can't ever say no. You know, yeah, it was, it was like, just like, hey, you know, you guys want to go here. You want to go there. You want to go to Taiwan. You want to go to New Zealand. You want to go to Israel. You want to go, you know, it's just like, uh, yeah, okay, we'll go. Yeah, okay, we'll go. And we just never said no. And we just beat the shit out of ourselves. And it just took a toll. I wish somebody would have put the brake, you know, slammed the brakes, you know, and been like, guys, take a break. You're going to burn yourselves out. Now, did a lot of, did a lot of what would come next just like, become the uh like the furthering of the separation once um once bobby left where evan started being like an actor and started having like a completely different role or do you think it was just another um symptom of all the different things happening in the road and the burnout that he was trying to like do something creative because i obviously i've heard him say sometimes there's just a lot going on with the band he wanted to try new things but it I, I have to wonder if in the process of trying to hold things together, the guy going off and, you know, starting to go from being on Oz and then your record label changes, there must've been a lot of turmoil that was just like overshadowed and not dealt with at that time. Yeah, there, it definitely was. And like the, the band, um, we were so burnt out that we were all looking for, other things to do because we were just burnt out and um you know using uh evan doing the tv show oz as an example i mean he he got an opportunity to be on that show and um it was good for him to do that you know what i mean like personally it was good for him to do that it raised his profile it he tried something new and he did well with it and people noticed him for it and everything and like you know, we, I, I mean, personally, I was pretty proud of him that he was doing that. It was cool. Um, but in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, cool. You know, do the TV show, but let's do the band, you know? Um, but, you know, things change over time. And 
you can't blame people for, you know, getting burnt out on the band and, and having an opportunity to do something else and wanting to go do it. So, you know, I, I personally never wanted to stand in anybody else's way of doing something else, um, something that they, they wanted to try. And, uh, you know, so those things started coming up. Not, not just with Evan, but with Billy also. Um, yeah, he had another you know, projects and things like that. Other projects and uh, studio things and all that stuff. I mean, I think it was all a symptom of being really burnt out on biohazard. And then losing Bobby and, and the band lost a lot of energy, you know? Do you think that in hindsight, not having Bobby, whether it's in the studio or in, just in the van or just in the band in general was like trying to drive a, uh, a car with one less tire or was there stuff that he bringing to the table? You guys couldn't replicate. It's hard to say like, it always felt like when it was the original four of us, like if, if I'm going to use the car analogy that you just brought up, I felt like when it was the original four of us, we were in a huge, powerful monster truck that could not be stopped, you know? And when it wasn't the original four of us, when it was us and somebody else, um, it, it felt like we were cruising along in, a, in like a Volkswagen rabbit. You know what I'm saying? Like we just didn't have the power. We didn't, have the chemistry um the same way you know uh it was just different and it affected everything not just the songwriting but the performances and you know it, it's just when the original band was together we checked each other you know we kept each other in check when when uh when all the original guys weren't there anymore there was nobody there to really keep us in check. You know what I mean? Like everybody just kind of did their own thing. And, and it just doesn't, it doesn't work as well as when the four of us were together. That was always my opinion, you know? And then we worked, I mean, we worked really hard after that Montaleo record because I didn't like that record. Um, the record that came after that was called New World Disorder. And I vowed to make um, a more classic, biohazard record and to really pour everything we had into it and um i thought new world disorder was a very good biohazard record but still it lacks the spirit and energy of the original band you know it's still it's a good record and it did well but it just did not have the the spirit and energy of of the band uh, that we had in the first uh you know six seven years of the band um and then, you know, moving forward to like 2008, when we finally got back together with Bobby and, and the band pulled back together, the original band, the, I mean, the minute we started playing together again, that fire was immediately there. It was like so much that, I, that we could barely handle it. You know, it was like so amazing to be back again. And um, it was great. It was great. And then when we tried to go write a record in the studio, we realized that we really hadn't figured out how to work together in the studio again. And, and we made another record that I didn't really love. And, you know, because again, we made it in turmoil. And as soon as we finished it, Evan quit again, um, Evan quit rather for the first time. And, and we were left again with, without the original band. So, I mean, we've been through so much in this band over the years, Joe, it's just like, I could, you know, we could write a book. We could have a fucking dramatic movie 
about. I'm surprised you, know, you guys haven't down. had one of those books yet. <laughs> I mean, there's so well, many I'm, different, there's so many different things. Like when you're talking about New World Disorder, the record label mm-hmm. that you left, the record label that you're on, that you left Warner Brother to be on, was yeah. conglomerate merged into one thing. Then yeah. you're like, all right, we're gonna go do something else, and. It just and I love the way that you put it that you were just cruising because it makes sense. And I'll tell you, having seen you play in Allentown in January 2008, I think it was that was absolutely fucking fantastic. That was like, oh fuck, these guys are going to do this, and I I could totally relate. And then, um, we were lucky to eventually have you play this hardcore in some capacity, and with the Scott Roberts who had kind of filled in. During yeah. that, and then said, "You know what? He's going to become the singer." But even then, I remember you guys being like, "Oh, we'll see what happens." Like you guys were not trying to be like, "We're going to go like no world domination plans." It seemed like, yeah, I was like, "Let's just see, let's have fun." And um, so I can see you looking back with some of this, with not regret, but just like remorse for actions not taken, or oh yeah, we should have stepped in. So I appreciate you telling us that because I've always wondered the thought process once, you know, cause you got some pretty high highs and a tremendous track record with so many tours. And I mean, it'd be easier for you to name bands you didn't tour with than it would be to yeah. try to figure out bands you toured with. And that's yeah. even through the early two thousands and all that. And then again, yeah. when you guys got active again, you were trying to be active, you know, like it seems like, well, you know, it's funny. It's funny, Joe, because, like on on the studio tip, making records, like it wasn't as great as it was, but live, the band was killing it. And we were touring, you know, in the late 90s, 2000s and beyond, touring just as much as we ever did all over the world. And there were still parts of the world where there was no change in the band's popularity. You know, it was still crazy. It was still popular and, and really uh, busy for us. And I mean, that never really went away, you know, um, and that's something that I'm, I'm very grateful for, you know, was that the reach of Biohazard went very far around the world. You know, like we didn't sell 10 million records like a, like a big hit record like Nirvana, but we, we had an underground kind of reach that went very far. And as a result of that, you know, Biohazard broke new ground all over the place breaking open new territories all over the world, you know, for bands like ours to go to. And I mean, any time the band would gear up for a touring cycle, it was like, all right, well, we got the United States for two months. We got Europe for two months. We got Japan, Australia, New Zealand for two months. We got South America for a month. You know, it was just like we could map out almost the whole world. Wow. You know, and, and like, Back then, a lot of bands weren't doing that, you know, no. and uh, we, we did it multiple times. And I mean, if we if we pulled it together today, we could probably do it right now. You know, um, maybe not so much in the States, but everywhere else. I think it would be, you know, a, a cool thing and, and a, a busy thing to do. Um, so I'm very grateful for the reach of biohazard. But, it you know, it goes beyond biohazard, though. It goes back to the groundwork that bands that influence influence us excuse me uh you know did before us like you know bands like agnostic front you know bands like um you know uh chrome eggs and bad brains and and carnivore and 
Sheer Terror and Murphy's Law and, you know, the New York bands. And then way back to, you know, the Minor Threat and Black Flags and Fear and all those bands. And, the, you know, like those bands all laid the groundwork for a band like us to come along in the late, uh, late 80s um, and, you know, take things in a different direction, but really influenced by the, the scene in New York City, you know. So, you know, credit to all of those bands and especially bands like Agnostic Front, who are still doing it at a high level. You know, they just played here, you know, last week, two weeks ago. And I was at the I was at the Black and Blue Bowl and everybody was talking about how great AF was and how great Sick of It All was and how great Mad Ball was. And these bands have all been around a long time. And, you know, these bands all laid, you know, the groundwork for what Biohazard became. Um you know, in the late 80s when we came along. So, you know, got I got to, you know, pay that debt to those guys, you know. I, I, I love hearing that, especially from someone as accomplished as you, because sometimes I think with the younger bands, the newer stuff, there there's no idea what went into the roads paved for them. Right. Um, now, before we get into the current project, I, yeah. for me, I, I, I skipped over your your beginning the band blood clot or the beginning of the band blood clot with John. We played yeah. shows with you guys. You guys yeah. had you guys had played uh we played the knitting factory together and you guys also played at this is hardcore. Yeah. And then when John rebooted the band, he came and played, he didn't play the heavier stuff. And I'm like, yo, what's up? He's like, ah, oh, we got these new songs. So then fast forward to 2021, Blood Clot yeah. plays Thompson Square Park. This motherfucker goes out and plays some of that heavy shit. I'm like, now you're playing the fucking heavy shit. <laughs> but, uh, he called I, me about that. And he was like, you know, we're playing some of the stuff from our record. And I was like, good, do it. It's good stuff. Yeah, you know? it's fucking so. I love John. It, it, I, that was a like a best of band. That was like a, a band where like a bunch of guys got together. And it was cool to see you do it. But um, I'm actually... You know, I, I wanted to bring it back on just to tidy up the, the biohazard stuff, but uh, you know, it's this is hardcore season. We got a pre show and we got the band that you have joined and you're trying to elevate Kings Never Die. And yeah, in the last thing you talked about, where you're talking about Sick of It All and Gnostic Front and the spirit of all that, I, I think the band you're playing with now resurrects some of that spirit and carries it forward. And I'm just happy to see that you're in a band and to know that you're in a band with your longtime friend, Dan Nastasi. So uh-huh. um, I know that you've known Dan forever. And you can, like we've talked yeah. about a little bit, but like walk us through the process to how you end up being in Kings Never Die and what's been going on. Yeah, well, um, Kings Never Die has been around for a couple of years. You know, Dan Nastasi formed the band with uh, a singer named Dylan Godino and um, Larry Naroda and uh jay calfin and they had another drummer or another couple of drummers i think uh and they had you know a couple of songs they put out and they had been doing stuff for a while and uh like right around like january of last year danny called me out of the blue he was like what are you doing and i said nothing what are you doing he said i got this band and we need a drummer now and you know kings never die we need a drummer and i was like ah i wasn't real interested at first you know because i was really 
I was home just recording songs in my garage. And, and my shit I do by myself is so wacky, man. I just do whatever I want to do. You know, heavy shit, hard shit, whatever I want to do, I just do it. There's no rules. And I was like, you know, I don't really want to join somebody else's band and have to play by somebody else's rules. You know what I mean? Like, I'm enjoying my freedom right now. And there's no pressure on me. I don't got to go on the road. I don't got to sell no records. I don't got to do shit except play the music I like. And for me, that works, you know. But Danny was like, nah, man, you know, it would be good if you joined the band. You should come check it out. And I was like, you know, I'm not really that into it. And he was like, you know, just come down to the studio. Just come to the studio. So he convinced me to meet him at the rehearsal studio, which wasn't far from where I live. And uh, he and I got together in the studio without the rest of the band. And we, and we just played together. And, you know, I know Danny for a long time from Monkey Pup and his association with those guys. And those guys uh, had, had a, uh, uh, they brought Biohazard on tour back in the day and really helped us out. So always respected Monkey Pup. And Danny was their guitar player and creative force in the band. So getting in the studio with him and playing with him, which is something I had never done before. After that rehearsal, I was like, wow, this guy's really good and this could be good, but I still kind of don't want to do it. And he was like, look, come back again. Let's keep jamming. You know, let's go, let's go to the studio once or twice a week. And for me, it just felt good getting out of the house, going to the studio and playing with somebody else. So I just kept going. And uh, he was showing me song ideas that he had and songs that they had already written. And I liked some of it, but I didn't love all of it. And one night we had a conversation and I was like, look, if I'm going to continue to like work with you guys, you know, I don't really love a lot of the stuff in, in some of the songs, you know, and I only really am interested in playing music that I like, you know, shit that I really love. I'm not really interested in playing stuff that I'm kind of like, eh. So Danny just said to me, he said, look, feel free to change whatever you want to change. And from that point on, he and I basically tore down every song that they had every riff that they had and built it back up into different types of songs, basically rewrote everything. Um, and really started fleshing out a new batch of songs. And within a month we had like 16 songs or something crazy like that. And he brought in the rest of the band and I met the rest of the guys and they're all great musicians and good people. And I was enjoying playing with the band. And I just said, you know what, Dan, let's just go in the studio and record all this shit. This sounds great. We sound great. Let's go in the studio and record. I got a place down in Long Branch, my friend. We can go down there and we can do it. So we did. We went down and did it in like a day and recorded like 15 songs. And then we went back two months later and did another four songs. Um, and now, you know, we have all this music that's done. And, um, you know, um, that that's pretty much how I ended up playing with the band, you know. And... Um, you know, I never, like I said, I never intended to join somebody else's band. I was just kind of like doing what I was doing. I wanted to play drums again, but um, I was playing at home and, you know, I'm pretty content just playing by myself. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need the attention of, uh, and pressure of being in a band, you know, um, but it turned into a really fun experience for me and a challenging experience and an interesting one. So I kept doing it. and. Um, you know, here we are a year and a half later, and we're, we're doing a lot of shows, which is really cool. We've had some great opportunities recently with some of our friends, like Life of Agony. We're doing a bunch of shows with them. Um, 
we had an opportunity to be on the Black and Blue Bowl. Now we have an opportunity to be on your show. Um, so there's some good, exciting stuff happening, and I'm really just enjoying it right now. And, uh, you know, as far as the business of the band, I'm not really that interested in the business of the band. I I'm more interested in just making, like, cool shows, having fun, playing really hard, and having good songs that I like. And, you know, Kings Never Die has really turned into a cool project. And, uh, you know, it's not the hardest band, and it's not, it's not like... Um, you know, like, uh, I, I wouldn't say like the, the genre of music is clearly defined that we do, but it's definitely influenced by hardcore punk and heavy metal. You know what I mean? And, uh, but I, you know, I think the way the songs are structured and, and the positivity in the songs is really a, a good thing. You know, um, the thing I enjoy about Kings Never Die is everything is pretty positive. You know, we keep it pretty, pretty light, even though we talk about some heavy shit and some of the songs, we still kind of keep it light. And, um, you know, that's kind of what the world needs right now, I think. You know, no, I, I, I love that. Once again, you broke that down so evenly for us. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's important. I know at times. Probably from the time biohazard really stopped was active and in the 2008 you did the blood clot but over time yeah. you've probably been approached by people to be in bands before correct yeah yeah i have been and um you know there were probably a few opportunities that i should have taken uh you know professionally speaking but you know like i said i mean i i it, it's hard for me to do my best musically um as a musician and as a drummer when, when I don't love all the music, you know, I, I it's hard for me to just kind of call it in. Like I really got to be invested um, emotionally and physically and spiritually in a band. That's just the way I am. You know, that's how I, I always was uh, with, with biohazard and that's how I am with things never die. I'm, I'm very involved in everything. And um, you know, I believe in it. I believe it's a good band. And I believe the songs are good. And I think if people give it a chance, they'll see that it's, you know, it's a cool thing. You know, it's, it's a cool thing. It's something different and it's something unique. It has good energy. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm all about, man. Just bringing, bringing good energy with, to whatever I try to do. That's what I want to do, you know? So uh, converse to that, or uh, in converse with that, I want to say a lot of people would have potentially just, jumped into some band to not leave the road behind or not give up the musician's path. But it sounds like you have the duality of like the good family life, the job, you still love playing the music. You love playing your instrument, but you didn't need to be validated by staying in some active band. Do you know, is yeah. there any reason why you got to that point or where that, that stability came from? You're like, I don't need to be in another band. Now that biohazard's over. Well, I think I'm very lucky that I don't rely on popularity and celebrity to feel good about myself. You know, a lot of people in bands and people I know, they have to be the center of attention or they're not happy. They have to be doing something that brings them attention, good or bad. They have to be, you know, doing that uh, to validate themselves and how they feel about themselves. And me, I was never like that. Like I never cared about being famous, 
never. Like it's a cool thing, you know, to be well known or to have some level of celebrity like we did at one point, but it wasn't the prime reason for me doing anything. Like I played music because I love playing the drums and I love playing music and I love the feeling of being in a band with your friends and creating something together and giving it out to people and having other people feel it and become a part of it. I didn't get into it for, you know, to be famous. I'm not interested in being famous. And I don't, you know, and it's probably a bad thing that I'm not one of those people who puts themselves out there to kind of promote themselves because I know a lot of good dudes who do that and they get a lot of work out of that. And that's cool. They have a lot of opportunity. I've definitely missed a lot of opportunity over the years because I don't put myself out there at all. Like, you know, <laughs> if it was up to me, I would just be playing in my garage and, and you know, <laughs> perfectly content with that because I don't really need the notoriety. It's nice to have it. And, and I'm cool with everything. Like I'm not anti fame and fortune, but um, you know, it wasn't my primary driving factor. So for me, I think I'm fortunate that, that I have that attitude because I know a lot of guys who do shit that really sucks just to get attention, you know, and a lot, I know a lot of guys who do music that really is half-assed and shitty and you know, they're doing it to appease like their need for attention and they're, they have to go on the road and play shows that suck. And, and, you know, it's just like this crazy need for attention. And, um, I would hate to be, you know, uh, part of something that everybody knows sucks and I'm just doing it for, to satisfy some need for attention without, having any real creative fulfillment, you know, that, that would be just the worst thing in the world. So, you know, I'm glad I'm not driven by that. I'm, I'm driven by, I want to make memorable music. You know, that's what drives me and Kings never die. However you define the genre of it to me, it's just a heavy, good, energetic band. Um, I believe we've made a record that is a really good, memorable record. And, you know, the EP is coming out a couple of uh, weeks and it's got four songs on it. And the end of the year, we're going to put out the rest of the record. But, you know, I, I think um, I'm hoping that when people hear it, they can hear the, the energy and hard work we put into it. You know, because that's, that's what means the most to me. I love the genuine reality of Dan Schuler. It's like, ah, no, I don't need that. <laughs> well, you know the deal. There's a lot of people that would, to the point of actually wear costumes, if need be, to stay valid yeah. or stay on the world, the stage. And I yeah. think it's fantastic that you're honest with yourself and like, I don't need that. It's a fantastic thing to hear from people, especially yeah. for all that you have achieved and all the work you put into it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's good. Like I said, it's good and bad. You know, if, if I was more of a self promoter, I'd probably do a lot more musical work over the years, but uh, you know, I'm just not it ain't my thing. Nothing against anybody who is though. That's cool. Over all the years, I know you're still friends with most of the guys in biohazard. Would yeah. you say that the the stuff that happened with Evan and, and the split, is that ever something where you could see yourself getting a phone call like, hey, we're doing a 20 year or something? Or do yeah. you think do you think that um the sun has shined its last days on the biohazard uh era of your playing and all that? <laughs> well, you know, it's hard to say. Um me personally. I talked to everybody in the band. You know, I talked to Bobby last night or two nights ago. 
I talked to Evan last week. I talked to Billy the other day. You know, I speak to everybody. They're all my friends. They're all my brothers. What happened in the past is in the past. And, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not trying to rehash the negativity of the past. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I appreciate them. I appreciate the people they are. I appreciate their talents and the great things we did together. And that's how I choose to look at my experience from Biohazard from all those years. So, yeah, I'm glad that we're all friends. And that's how I want to keep it, you know. Um, as far as Biohazard getting back together, if it was up to me, yeah, of course. I would do it in a heartbeat, you know. I would be happy to do it. I'd love to go play the shows again, you know, the songs again, and um, celebrate, you know, the legacy of what we, what we created, you know, because it's a great thing. And it's lasted a long time. And nothing lasts forever. And in 50 years, we're all going to be dead anyway. So, you know, we might as well, <laughs> you know, it's as simple as just going, you know, you want to be an asshole, not do nothing, or just say, fuck it, let's go do this. It'll be fun. You know, I'd rather have fun. So for me, sounds like fun to go do Biohazard. I would do it, of course. But, um, you know, Biohazard is a difficult beast. You know, there's four strong. <laughs> yeah, a lot of moving pieces, you know, a lot of, a lot of like parts. A lot of things have to happen uh to get the four of us on the same page and there's a lot of ego involved you know and when i say ego that's not like a negative thing you know some people ego is a negative thing but you know you have to have healthy ego to be in a band you have to have a healthy ego to be willing to put yourself out there and perform and there's a lot of ego involved in biohazard healthy and not so healthy and you know once everybody gets over themselves Maybe we'll be able to do something, but you know, I don't, I don't know if we're at that point yet. But who knows? I don't, I don't know what the future holds. You know, um, the guys are all doing different things, musical, non-musical, um, but everybody's doing good. So who knows? Did maybe, the, maybe not. Did this? Did the things that fell apart at Biohazard mm -hmm. hold you back from doing a project? Like, did you not? feel like oh, i'm never going to do something that i'm really going to want to put time into like what do you think held you back or and what in kings never die pulled that stuff back out of you well i i think it was me that held myself back because at the when biohazard fell apart i was really hurt you know i felt like uh i put so much work into something that you know got all fucked up for whatever reason and it took me a long time to process like why it happened how it happened how i let it happen and what my role was in all of it happening you know what i mean um so you know over time you know you process these things and you think about what happened and you think about the mistakes you made and you know for in the in the course of me figuring all that stuff out I wasn't really comfortable jumping into a band with a bunch of guys again. I just wasn't, you know, it took me a couple of years to kind of come around to the idea because I had invested myself so heavily in biohazard uh, for all those years um, and felt like I got screwed at the end. Not anybody else's fault, you know, my fault and everybody's fault. Um, but I just felt, I felt fucked at the end of it. Like, man, you know, how the fuck can you just start a band with your friends? How can you start out with a, with a bunch of friends, buddies, brothers, 
and have it turn into this after all these years. Like, how the fuck does that happen? I don't want to have that happen again. So I, like I said, that was why I kind of was like, I don't want to join somebody else's band, walk into somebody else's chemistry and somebody else's ego and, and dudes with weird problems and shit like that, that I don't want to deal with because, you know, it was, it was a difficult experience being a part of biohazard. It was challenging, um, but really great, you know, at the same time, you know, the, so many dynamic elements to everybody's personalities and egos and craziness. Um, it was always a challenge to kind of balance things and keep it going. But, but it was amazing and interesting at the same time, you know? Um, so yeah, I was a little gun shy for a while when that all fell apart. I needed time. Like I said, to process it and figure out what my role was and all that stuff. And I needed to change as a person, you know, but I feel like I've definitely uh, worked and examined myself quite a bit. And, and uh, I've definitely changed over the years. You know, I wouldn't say older, mellower or wiser, but I've definitely uh, learned a lot about my shortcomings and, you know, I've learned from my mistakes and, uh, I definitely have a more simplistic, um, basic view of life these days. You know, I used to super analyze things back then. Nowadays, everything's pretty simple for me. You know, I'm just like, and, and when I say that, what I mean is that in terms of relationships with people, if somebody makes me happy and somebody has good intentions and they have good energy, then I'm all in with that person. You know what I mean? If somebody's got a weird energy and they got things going on, you know, maybe I got to try to help that guy. You know, if somebody's if somebody's doing things that are bothering me, maybe I got to look at myself to figure out why it's triggering me. You know, these I used to crazy analyze all that stuff. Now it's like I said, it's pretty simple. I try to stick with positive people, good vibes, and uh, that's that's what I'm trying to bring to all this shit. So, you know, that's it, man. That's where I'm at in my life at 52 years of age. Well, I think it. I think it comes. <laughs> it comes to you now. Especially when it comes to ego, the the thought process when you use the word ego is automatically an exaggeration of someone. But really, the ego is the part of of a person's consciousness and personality that gives them the ability to be out front, to be up front. And what happens is, is people sometimes misuse the term or like they use it. Oh, well, that guy's really egotistical. And it's like, you try standing up front in <laughs> front of 50,000 persons or be away from home from your family and have, yeah. and have the power of conviction of, Hey, I'm going to follow my art. And I think yeah. that at a certain time, especially when you're younger, I mean, you're saying you're 52 now. So you gotta, you, you know, you do the math. You're at the, you're at the high water mark in your twenties whooping some ass nightly and able to survive it and get up it like them tours would <laughs> fucking kill people now you know like it's amazing yeah. that roger does it i don't know obviously Vinny's a machine that's how he still does it but yeah. you know like it, it's hard to do them tours i mean yeah and 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 to it's be a person also to what you mentioned is important to be someone that somebody can walk up to and say hey because of a record you played I started playing music or, Hey, this record got me through something. You're just a kid from Brooklyn, man. You're just a guy who's like, I'm trying to do this. You're like, this is the band we started for fun. And it became, it becomes impactful on a world level. And I think that you have to build 
a wall and some ego to defend yourself, to defend your, your real emotions from the outside world. And to Absolutely. see that, to see that in growth, you've kind of, you not that you had to strip away some form of ego, but you've gotten down mm-hmm. to the understanding that like, yo, all these guys are friends. And it's such a shame that more people ha- in bands couldn't do that kind of like soul searching and acceptance. Now it's not saying everybody in biohazard has the same feelings, but it's good to know that you're doing that. And um, yeah. I imagine in that work is how it was easy for you to say, Hey, you know what? I mean, it's hard. It's hard to tell your friend, Hey, I know you want me to be in your band, but I, there's songs I don't enjoy. Like to have yeah. the confidence that you can speak to Dan and it won't hurt his feelings. There's yeah. a depth there, man. And I, and I, and well, I, I think it might have hurt his feelings a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, but yeah, Danny's, you know Danny's a very um, he, he Danny's been around a long time. Danny Stas, he's been in this business a long time. He's my age, so Dan was like he, he was understanding, and he once he heard what we were doing together, he was like, you know what, this is this is turning out better. You know, let's continue. Let's let's do it together, and and that's what we did. So it's a good relationship we have. That's what kept me a part of wanting to be a part of Kings Never Die was that acceptance of, you know, willing to, to break everything down and rewrite everything again, you know, um, in the spirit of making it better. You know, that was uh, that was a big part of me going, yeah, this is cool. Let's do this. You know, I mean, at the basis of your last uh, band, you know, it was, hey, I'll, I'll come in and I'll join your band and I'll, I'll play some stuff, but I want to kind of change it. <laughs> and you built a great friendship with these guys. And I feel like the natural first step to do a band, especially for fun, is with your friends, right? Yeah. I mean, it's got to be fun. You got to have, you know, a good relationship with the people you're doing it with because you're going to spend a lot of time together. And anytime you're doing creative endeavors with other people, lots of feelings and lots of ego stuff comes up. So you got to be around people who are reasonable and positive and open to get past those little things so that you can, you know, create with a clear mind. And uh, it's not easy to find that combination of people. You know, it's not easy. So I just try to make it simple for everybody I work with, man. You know, everybody I do music with. It's like, yo, if you want me to come in and play drums, I'm just going to bang them out. And, you know, I'm going to keep it real simple. And, and you know, I, I'm not going to complicate things. You know, I just want the music to rock and have real depth emotionally and real intensity. And, and then I'm pretty happy. You know, I like that authentic intensity in music and in art. And, uh, you know, that's that's the the level I've broken myself down to these days is just trying to, trying to represent good energy. You know, when, uh, when you look back at things that happen with biohazard, what do you think one of the, if there was any misconceptions that people generally hold about biohazard? Well, one of the biggest stupidest things was that we were Nazis, you know, from way back in the beginning, like, you know, because we had a song that said, uh, you know, uh, stomping through the world, uh, marching all in stride, uh, we'll march across the world with American Nazi pride. Like, it, you know, people heard that and they were like, holy shit, these guys were Nazis. But they didn't realize that the song was about, uh, you know, pride, American pride and unity. 
you know, and, but I mean, it's just one of those words that if you say it, you know, it's like, oh shit, they're fucking Nazis. You know, meanwhile, here we were four guys from Brooklyn that, you know, I mean, well, mo three guys from Brooklyn, you know, who grew up in neighborhoods where, you know, our neighborhoods were fully integrated with all kinds of people. You know, we had to get along with everybody to survive. And there was no way you could be a fucking white power fucking Nazi in a neighborhood like that. You know, it's impossible. You know, it's impossible. You could be prejudiced. You could be racist. You could prejudge people all you want. But in the end, if you want to survive, you got to accept everybody. You know, so that was a fucking crazy misconception about the band, you know, back in 89, 90. Everybody was like, oh, these guys are like a white power band. I was like, what? What are you fucking crazy? We're the complete opposite of that whole thing. You know what I mean? Like that, that was not our, our vibe at all. You know, so that was the biggest, most annoying misconception, you know? Um, yeah, that, that, that was pretty much the one that bothered me the most. I always wondered if you felt like once the the high watermark was coming for biohazard, if you were treated differently by people that you guys in bands came up with, or if people felt some form of either jealousy or a different kind of way about you guys because you had been elevated away from like just a pure underground and started playing some more mainstream stuff. If there was any, obviously there's de definitely people who were celebrating you guys. And a lot of people were yeah. looking at like, this is a win for the home team. But how yeah. did you deal with the people that you came up with when, when you felt like it was a negative thing that you guys were moving forward? Well, um, in the very beginning, I, I mean, I think we were really lucky because we came from a scene in Brooklyn where all the bands really were friends. And it was always our attitude that when we came back home and played shows at home, to put our friends' bands on those shows and try to elevate them. You know, that was always our attitude. So um, there was no jealousy from us. Like to us, it was more like, yo, we got to show the rest of the world how great Marauder is. We got to show the rest of the world how great, you know, Life of Agony is. We got to show the rest of the world how great all these other bands from New York are. And um, so there wasn't any jealousy. It was more like, let's celebrate this whole thing. But definitely after, I remember uh, being away for a really long time. And the first night I got home, there was a show at Lemoore's. And my friends were like, yo, we'll pick you up. Let's go. And we went. And I remember running into a guy in a band that I had known for a long time. And he just kind of blew me off. Like, oh, yeah, Danny from Biohazard's here. Those guys are a bunch of dicks. And I was like, bro, are you kidding me? Like, that was the first time I ever experienced that kind of hometown jealousy from somebody. And it was so negative and so shitty. I was just like, wow. I, you know, I, I, it bothered me. But, I, you know, after a while, you realize that there are just some people who haven't come to terms with their own shit. And they just got to be negative about it. You know, like, they don't have the positive energy within them to celebrate other people's success. They just got to talk shit and be down about people. So, I mean, that happened. And it happens to everybody every band anybody who has any level of success in this world you got to deal with the haters you know but i never dwelled on it you know i i didn't want to write songs about it and make a big deal about it i was more like yo we got so much good stuff going on and so many good people involved with us let's just stay on the you know the positive tip you know and and that's how i try to keep it is there ever 
I'm out probably a week or two month year. Was there any time that you legitimately stopped playing? What do you mean? Like stop playing drums? Yeah. Even if it was just by yourself. Um, and not for like health reasons or, Hey, I got like a lot going on right now, but like legitimately said cognitively, like I ain't playing these fucking drums. Never. I never said that, but there was a time. Um, where I just kind of was like, wow, I haven't played in three months. What the fuck? And it was just from just busy doing life with my kids and my wife and, and my job and everything else. You know, it was just, I didn't make time to play music. But the whole time I was going, fuck, I want to play. I haven't played, you know. Um, but there was never a time where, where I was like, you know, throwing down the drumsticks and going, ah, I don't want to play no more. Fuck this shit. That, that has never happened. Since I'm literally four or five years old, I've been obsessed with drums. And like, you know, all these years later, I still have the same like enthusiasm for playing drums and, and making music. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I was playing for an hour before you, I called you tonight, you know, um, just in my garage sweating like an animal. You know, it's, I just enjoy it. You know, so I've never really had a time where I was just like, fuck, I quit. I never quit. That's awesome. That's fucking great. Yeah. Do you obviously this is a fun project. Kings never die. One of yeah. your longtime friends. Do you feel like the members who are not you and Dan, do you do you feel like when you guys like said, all right, we're all doing this together now? Do you feel like they were kind of not uneasy, but like fuck, we've got some shoes to fill? Or are you guys all approaching this like, okay, this is gonna be for fun, we'll take this where it needs to take it. Like where, like when, when you, when it was decided you guys are going to do this for real, like you guys are all going to play in this band together. Do you feel like the guys who were not in Biohazard or Doggy Dog or Monkey Pop or Murphy's Law had to go, all right, fuck, we're really in a band with these guys? I don't know. Maybe they felt that way, but I'm not really sure. Like I, I, I get really uncomfortable around people who, who are uncomfortable around me, you know? And like if it was an, uh, if I walked in the studio with these guys and they were like, Oh my God, the drummer from biohazard, we love you guys. And they just couldn't like relax and be themselves because they were big fans and they had that pedestal thing going on. I wouldn't be comfortable with that because that, that makes me feel really awkward, you know, but none of these guys were, were like that. These guys are all pretty accomplished on their own and they're all really good at what they do. Like they're great musicians. And, um, you know, nobody in the band has given me that vibe. Like, you know, at all. Um, and, you know, I told them, I said, you know, it doesn't matter what anybody did before. You know, it doesn't matter what I did for 28 years. It doesn't matter. You know, it matters what we're doing right now. And, you know, honestly, Joe, we're starting over as a baby band. I mean, last weekend we played the black and blue ball on Sunday. We went on at two o'clock in the afternoon and there was about 30 people in the audience when we started. And, you know, I'm not trying to call in favors and I'm not trying to like, you know, tell the world, Hey, the guy from biohazard is playing with this band. Cause who really gives a fuck? All people really care about is like, are you guys good? Are you guys real? And we are good and we are real. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're completely starting as a baby band, you know, nobody knows who we are. So that's the attitude I have about this band. And, and, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes and, you know, we're ready and willing to do the work to, to build it up 
to to a level that you know is sustainable and cool so yeah you know i'm trying not you know we don't have the whole ego thing going on everybody in the band is real cool i'm real laid back about shit no i, I love the idea of what you just presented you know What's um that? it's just that there's times where someone has a project and it's going very well or a yeah. long time band and they're like hey this is my new thing and it's like to understand that the new thing may not carry the same presence that comes with a humble presentation. And a lot of people kind of go, Hey, you know, like you're taking the opposite approach that many of your peers would. And then at the same time, you're taking on a new project with um, a beginner's like excitement, but Mm -hmm. a a seasoned veterans, like, look, these are the, these are the things that we're going to have to accomplish if we're going to get to this point. And I think it's fucking great because I think sometimes when people are either exiting a project or have another thing, they just want to keep the same inertia. And I think it's a, a great realistic point that you made saying like, Hey, we're a baby band and we're going to grow. And I think that that's the kind of mindset that's yeah. going to only help you grow. Yeah. Um, because I want it, I want it to be real, Joe, you know, I want it, I want it to be real. I don't want to attach biohazard to it. Um, you know, and advertise it that way and all that stuff, because then I don't know who's listening because they like it or who's listening because they're a fan of something else. You know, then I don't know, you know, and I don't know if it's real. And if, if it does well, I don't know if it did well because it was great on its own or it did well because, you know, all them biohazard kids came and listened to it or, or doggy dog fans came and listened to it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't want that attachment. I don't want to advertise those ties you know i want it to stand on its own so that in the end or during the journey i know that it's it's doing it on its own you know i want it to do it on its own and you know i don't really need to do this you know what i mean like i don't i don't i don't need to play music for any other reason other than i like it and you know to have the band come out um I just need to know that it's authentic and attaching it to something that already has momentum would take away the authenticity of it. And I, I, you know, that would ruin it for me. So I I don't want to do that. I haven't done any press releases that say Kings never die X biohazard drummers, new project, you know, none of that stuff. Then you're not going to see that, you know, it's just, I don't want to attach all that because then I don't know if it's real. That's fucking fantastic. I remember seeing a Life of Agony reunion show where mm-hmm. the opener bands were all different members of Life of Agony's other projects. Yeah. And that's the first yeah. thing that came to mind was like the concept like, okay, are we here to see the band? Or like is this like a, a new band showcase situation? And yeah. I love that you said like you want you want the earnest and honest response, not the tailored one. Yeah. And I and I think that's a very rare approach to this. I know it's late, so I'm going to ask you two or three more questions, just basically general, then we'll, we'll wrap yeah. this one up. Yeah, my wife's going to kill me. I know. <laughs> no, it's it, good. It, the fact that you paid homage to all these different hardcore punk bands that came before you, mm-hmm. I, I have to wonder if there's one record out of all those bands you mentioned that you're sitting at home playing to, or you're thinking of when you're playing your drums by yourself of all the classic hardcore records or bands um, that you mentioned. I would say that there are three records 
that I personally listen to and hold at a certain level that every time I make music, I think of the level that those records are at. And I say to myself, I have to push it like to that level. And those, for me, those three records in that genre, you know, of, of like hardcore punk, um, the three records would be uh, the Bad Brains first record, um, uh, Carnivore Retaliation, and uh, Chromag's Age of Quarrel. Those would be the three records that, to me, most define the spirit of hardcore punk. And every time I sit down on the drums to play anything reminiscent of that type of music, I'm thinking in my head, I have to do it as good or as well as those guys did it. I have to push myself as hard as possible. Oh, and Victim in Pain too. Um, I have to push myself that hard to, to do what those guys did. Um, and I can't, I still can't do it. You know, those guys, what they've done um, is effortless to them, you know? And uh, for a guy like me, I got to work real hard at it. But those, those are my standard. That's like, that's what hold the standard for me. If I'm not doing something, you know, having that as my inspiration, it's just going to suck. You know, I, with that as my inspiration, I, I know I'm going to work harder to make it better. So, yeah, I would say that's, those four records are it. That's fucking fantastic. Yeah. Do you feel as if there was a musical moment? I'm trying to pull this up. Do you think there's a musical moment that was lost when Peter Steele died? Because I know you were in the scene with him, watched him come up, watched yeah. all of his projects. Like, there's a lot of people that emulate him. There's a lot of people that mm-hmm. now write about him. But being close to him at, at, and like the musical scene itself, when certain people pass, they leave stuff. Do you feel yeah. like he what like he was more than just a presence? Like, what was your overall understanding or thoughts on him? Well, I feel like, well, Pete was amazing. You know, he's a brilliant, hilarious guy. You know, hilarious, like very witty, very smart, really funny. Um, and he was just such a Brooklyn guy, you know. And I think when people mention the Brooklyn sound of that type of music, um, you know, they mentioned Biohazard and stuff like that, and that's cool. But really, the guy that created all of it was Pete Steele and Louis Beto and you know keith alexander and mark you know those were the guys that really created the brooklyn hard you know uh heavy metal hardcore punk sound it was it was really carnivore and really pete was like the genesis of it and and he was you know and then to have him go and create another genre of music with typo negative where he really embodied this kind of goth uh, metal kind of like uh, you know character and it was real and it was him and you know he, he created another thing that was so ahead of its time I mean the guy was just he was amazing he was ahead of his time he was a genius and when we lost Pete we lost we lost more than we'll ever know because that guy would have gone on and the other guys in Typo Negative too they would have gone on to create I'm certain they would have created another masterpiece at some point. I'm certain of it, you know, and we all lost out on that when Pete died. You know, that guy was um, a one in a billion. You know, he really was. 
And, uh, you know, guys like that don't come along every day. What guys at such a level of talent and intensity and, you know, extremely funny and smart and clever, you know, you don't get guys like that very often, you know. So we lost a lot when Pete passed away. He was great. He was amazing. Man, that was an amazing testament to him. Um, another huge influence on my life. Yeah. And um, I remember the minute and the day I was working in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and someone came over like, you, you listen to that Pete Steele? I'm like, yeah, like the radio just said he died. I was like, wait, what? The radio? <laughs> like we were getting ready to pour concrete. I'm like, this is fucking crazy. Um, last question. Thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for giving us the two episodes. I truly look forward to the Kings Never Die set this hardcore and the world checking you guys out. But is there one, if you had to have one moment of Biohazard played on a loop, just like like your favorite moment for Biohazard, whether it was a tour, a show, a recording moment, what do you think your favorite moment in the time of Biohazard was? All right. So um, I would say that that the coolest time for me, the funnest time was between the first two albums, you know, like after the first album came out and while we were making that urban discipline record, we were in such like a focused, amazing time at that time, you know, and we were creating things every day that were just like, to us, they were groundbreaking. And, you know, we played, we were playing so many great shows back home, especially in New York. Like we played the Ritz, we played CBs, we played Lemoore's a lot back then. And it was just a great time. A lot of our friends were around um, and there were a lot of great bands in New York that played with us that were around. It's just a great time, man. That was, that was a very memorable, awesome time for me. Nah, Dan, thank you for so much for touching back on the biohazard days. I look forward to the Kings never die days. I look forward to seeing you in Philadelphia and everywhere else. Yeah. Um, and once again, I'll put all your social medias up there. Uh, when the tracks are ready, we're going to play the new Kings Never Die show on the show. And just awesome. thank you for thank friendship. You. Thank you for everything. And you, I wish you guys the very best. And I look forward to seeing you in about, looks like almost six weeks, man. So thank you so much. Definitely. Thank you, Joe, man. It was a pleasure. Thank you for what you do, man. You do a nah, great job. It's amazing. Nah, I, I, I appreciate you. This time was great. And I uh, apologize to your wife for having you stay up so late. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll let her know. Thanks, brother. All right, brother. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, like I say, it's often hard to get young people and old fans back with new bands. But if there's ever been a check out, make sure you check out Kings Never Die. Dan Nastasi, I mean, his legacy is fantastic. We're going to have him on the show. Doggy Dog, Leeway, Murphy's Law, Mucky Pup, you know, and now Kings Never Die. I mean, there's tons of stuff. Can't wait to get into the Dan Nastasi episode. Thank you once again to have Danny Schuler two times. You know, there's a lot of respect given to the working class people in hardcore like Danny Schuler, who managed to find time despite biohazard and after biohazard to have a full ass life, being a good husband, being a good father. And um, I just appreciate his time. So that's why we're going to break this one up into two episodes. And big shout outs to Soupy, Clemo, all the young kids, Killing Time, I mean, Killing Me. Um, it's incredible. To see all the stuff. I mean, I've seen some videos from New Brunswick. The cut down never again to kids. The reaching out kids. Hardcore's in a great spot. And this is Hardcore's five weeks away. I hope you guys all come out. Um, make sure 
If there's a local show in your area, even if you don't know the bands, go check it out. There's a lot of new bands that are killing it that are going to make big fucking waves. None of them are going to be on Twitter crying about merch cuts. None of them are going to be bitching about the hard knock life of not having booking agents and managers and other crappy shit that's written on Twitter too much. Support real hardcore. Support real dudes who have been doing hardcore forever. This is what keeps it going. Make sure to go to TIHCpodcast.com and five weeks of this hardcore. Don't forget, get your shit now. Bye-bye.